at 17 years old, what was it like to get bitten? Oh, it was just an adventure. Hello, I'm Nipper Reed. And I'm Phil Wolf. So, settle down, have a nice cup of tea, and enjoy the Venomous Exchange Radio Podcast. Crumpets, Nipper. I want the crumpets. Well, as you've been such an extraordinarily good boy... It is with great joy that we have the honour of bringing you our esteemed guest, renowned herpetologist and engrossing author, Mr Stephen Spalls. For almost 50 years, Steve has contributed tirelessly to herpetology, having lived in multiple African countries and having been mentored by some amazing names in science. Steve has written several books, such as Sun, Sands and Snakes, The Handbook of Amphibians and Reptiles of Northeast Africa, and of course, The Dangerous Snakes of Africa. Hello, folks. Thanks for uh, joining us again tonight. We appreciate you could be anywhere, but you're still with us. We're very much appreciated by Phil and I. Um, tonight, we are super excited. Um, we're both fangirling hugely, particularly Phil with his love of Africa, um, to have an absolute herpetological legend with us, the lovely Stephen Spalls. Pleasure to be here. Did you prefer Stephen or Steve? Steve, yeah. Steve, okay, I'm happy with that. I can't believe I'm calling Stephen Spall Steve. That's maybe one already. <laughs> I know it's it's bizarre, right? Uh, it everyone is. calls me that. Yeah. There should be a Mister or a Sir in there somewhere. <laughs> um, obviously, all our listenership should know you from your many publications. Um, I'm going to just ask you to start from the beginning. What is your fascination with East African herpetology? How did that well, start? It's I was brought up in Kenya. I mean, when I was I was born in London, but um, where, whereabouts, was, in, whereabouts in London? Muswell Hill. Oh, Do you know North London. Anyway, I'm, um, when I was four, I mean, my father was a science teacher, physics teacher, and he got uh, offered a job in in Kenya teaching in East Africa. Um, this is in 1957. And so my parents went out there, quite interesting, with four children under five. Wow. I remember asking my father about this because it was a very brave thing to do, you know, to go out to an unknown country with four young children. And he just laughed and said, we'd have done anything to get away from your grandmother, <laughs> um, who was driving them mad, apparently. Oh, so, yeah, I, I went to Kenya when I was four. I lived there for 17 years. I went to, we lived in a town called Meru initially, and then in Nairobi. And um, I had all my schooling there. And I think, you know, young people do get, you know, it's very easy to get interested in natural history. I mean, when we lived in Meru, there were monkeys around antelope and things like that even you know migrating elephants used to pass through the town we went out driving we saw wildlife and things like that and i just got you know it's easy to get naturally interested my parents encouraged me i caught some frogs you know and i wanted to keep them and my father made me a cage and then we started we we collected some chameleons um in around meru you get the jackson's chameleons you know the big three-horned ones yeah and you know this just gripped me you know i just found them so fascinating and following on from that i mean my uh 
I saw one day in the in the East African Standard, the newspaper, that they'd started up a snake park in Nairobi, and it was being run by Jonathan Leakey. He was the son of Lewis Leakey, the famous anthropologist. And I wrote to Jonathan Leakey, asking him if he'd be interested in what I call some ordinary comedians. And I got a really nice letter back saying, yes, we'd love to have them. You know, no comedians are ordinary. And uh, so we sent a couple of these comedians down to Nairobi. And subsequently, when we were in Nairobi, we went to the museum and uh, we went to Lewis Leakey's office. Wow. And I met Jonathan and uh, he took us around the snake park and he sort of encouraged me, you know. And initially, you know, I, I, was, I was collecting sort of comedians and skinks and things like that. I was a bit nervous about snakes, but then 66, I started, I, you know, I started finding snakes. I had a friend at school who had a, a pet snake. He was a boarder. And uh, he asked me if I could look after his snake because the, you know, the, 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 the staff had found this snake in his possession and said, you can't keep that in the dormitory. So I looked after this snake for a while and uh, it was just a harmless green snake, Battersby's green snake, fascinated me. When I gave it back to this chap, I said, I'd like to get some snakes myself. And he said, oh, if you go out turning rocks and things like that, you'll find them. So I went out, I, st I started finding them. And I took, I started taking them to the Nairobi Snake Park, which at the time was being run by a, a man called James Ash, very charismatic herpetologist. And uh, James encouraged me. You know, he said, oh, this is, this, you know, this is great. You want to keep these things. If you find any more, feel free to bring them down, down here. So I started collecting them. And the, the third snake I found was at school. We were walking up a, a path. The school had big grounds. We were walking up from the river. Snake went across the path in front of us. And I went after it to pin it down. And it got up and spread a hood. <laughs> it didn't wow. stop me i i did i pinned it down i got it into a bag i took it down to the snake park and james ash was really excited he said this is the egyptian cobra and it's the, the first one that's been recorded from that part of nairobi wow Phil, Phil just filled me with enthusiasm you know i thought here i am making discoveries i mean at the time i was also interested in other sorts of wildlife but and also interested in sort of some science stuff but uh you know, I wasn't making discoveries in that, but here I was making discoveries in herpetology. So it just went on from there. That's amazing. How, I presume you had no formal training regarding venomous. I mean, you know, in, in an area where there is a huge amount of venomous species to just decide I'm going to go out and flip some rocks and look for snakes. It's not, like the, it's, not, it's not like the UK. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Things, things, things could have gone wrong. I mean, things have occasionally gone wrong. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I started off. I was very, I remember being very nervous, catching first sort of dangerous stuff. You know, but it was something I wanted to do. And the thing about this first cobra was it was quite small. By the time I sort of committed to catching it, it sort of reared up and spread a hood. I thought, well, you know, here I am. I've got a stick. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just pin it down. And things could have, you know, I say things could have gone wrong, but uh, they didn't. So, uh, touch wood. <laughs> yeah. Were, were, were there many um, field guides for the area at well, the time? Nothing, almost nothing for East Africa. I'm just trying to think. No, nothing at all. There was Pittman Snakes of Uganda. That's a very good book. It was published in 1938. Um, and it's, But it, it was expensive. I mean, I knew people that had it had copies and i'd occasionally looked at it but really there wasn't anything i mean when i first the first snake i got was a house snake took it to the snake park. i didn't know what it was i mean james ash identified it for me 
Um, there was a book by a guy called Richard Icemonger, and that was quite a good little book, actually. Although Icemonger was based in uh, what was then Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. But the book did cover some East African stuff. And it had a, a small range of pictures, but it also had descriptions of a number of species that were found in East Africa. And I remember once you know, catching a, a thing called a semi-ornate snake, little fast-moving diurnal snake. And um, I didn't know what it was, but I looked it up in Icemonger and the descript description was there. But yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a good field guide for East Africa. So did you and just treat every snake that you caught as venomous until you knew otherwise or? essentially yes but after a while i got to recognize the you know the sort of types the the different genera and things like that attributes so i mean i i came across a sand snake once a species that i hadn't met before but i could tell that it was a sand snake it and just... after a while in kenya in kenya the, the museum did have a quite good exhibit. And of course there was stuff on display at the snake park. So I think probably within a year of getting really interested, this is back in 66, 67, I knew what all the, you know, all the local snakes looked like. I, I gotta ask, what was it like to to not only learn from, but just interact with with Leaky and, and Ash? Like huge names in, in our in our I don't want to say community, our 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 science world what was it like just hanging out with them they got me started i mean this was the whole thing you know i mean in, you know in some countries you know here's a young person interested in snakes you'd be warned off but you know not with people like james ash and leaky and i mean there was an old guy called ionides as well he used to come to the snake park they were just full of enthusiasm you know and if you were willing to sort of you know chat with them they you know they were all always keen to talk with you and they'd always got time for you that was the thing that greatly impressed me I mean, the first time I caught a, a wolf snake, like a fidian, little burrowing snake, I took it to the snake park. Ionides was there, and uh, I didn't know who he was, and James introduced him to me. And I sat down with Ionides, and he talked all about this snake for sort of half an hour and how I shouldn't confuse it with a, a burrowing asp and things like that, and the ones he'd seen in, in Tanganyika, as it was then. Yeah, I mean, they, they were willing to give their time and their enthusiasm. I mean, when I said to James, you know, I'm really keen on this stuff, he said, well, why don't you join our youth wing? And the youth wing used to go down there on Saturdays or sometimes even after school and basically help out. And they did things that, you know, in retrospect, you, you'd never be allowed to do nowadays. I mean, James had me cleaning the pits and things like that and so on. I want to have a funny story once. He, he said uh, they had a pit with several small crocodiles, sort of about uh, two, three foot in. And James said, I want that pit scrubbed. Um, take a crate down there and put the crocodiles in there. And I said to him, how do you uh, how do you handle a croc? And he just said to me, go and find out. So, of course, <laughs> wow. I, pick, I pick one of these little crocs up by the tail. I mean, you probably know this. They can turn around. Yeah, I put yeah. this Nile crocodile up by the tail and it turned around and just had me in the fingers. Bow! And <laughs> I suddenly had this roar of laughter. And James was sort of standing by the pit. And he said, well, you won't do that again, will you? You know, I sort of I'd learned the hard way how to pick up a crocodile. So then after that, I got the got a grab stick, you know, and got it by the neck before trying to pick it up. But yeah, they they and then after a while, we started going out for problem snakes and things like that. And you know, I was just encouraged. And you know, things things as I say, things did occasionally go wrong, but more due to my sort of overconfidence. But those guys were just full of enthusiasm. It was a really marvelous learning experience. You know, being associated with the snake park and it's what you know engendered my interest in herpetology and it's remained with me ever since 
So you said you was in Kenya for how many years? 17. 17. Yeah. Uh, and then you returned to the UK? I did then. I came back with... We came back here. I mean, my family left in 74. Right. And uh, I came back here. I did a degree. I actually studied geology. Yeah, but okay. then when I'd finished, I joined the, um, I applied to VSO. I don't know if you know VSO, Voluntary Service yeah. Overseas. They take, yeah. I mean, they don't any longer, but they took graduates and basically placed you in a, in a, in a foreign country to do a useful job. And I, I, at my interview, I'd made big play of the fact that I could speak Swahili, I knew Kenya, I knew geology. I was confidently expecting to be sent to Kenya to do some geological work. I got sent to Ghana in West Africa <laughs> to, to teach physics in a, in a government secondary school. Wow. Um, and there I found, I mean, it was a lot of snakes there. I enjoyed it very much. Um, but also I discovered I enjoyed teaching. So when I came back to UK, I trained as a teacher. And uh, I met my wife in Ghana. She was also a, a British volunteer. And um, she taught chemistry. So after we got married, we uh, did our PGCE's postgraduate certificate education. We went to work in Egypt for a year. And then we did seven years in uh, Botswana. Subsequently, wow. and then 13 years in Ethiopia. And then my and then my wife had got tired of Africa by then. <laughs> <laughs> like to go back to Norfolk. So uh incredible. Absolutely incredible. Norfolk. Wow. That's wild. That is amazing. So obviously, if anyone is talking about East African herbs, you, your name is, is at the forefront of it. I mean, with you, you published a number of books, which we'll we'll, we'll talk about in a, in a bit. When you're in terms of East African venomous snakes which snake that is which is the most commonly encountered which is the most problematic for the uh, the people there i think you've got to say the puff adder it occurs virtually throughout the country in the savannah areas it's, it's the only place in kenya where puff adders aren't found are the real high altitude areas and closed forest so it's found everywhere and it's you know what puff adders are like it's a slow moving snake you know, if somebody approaches a puff adder, it tends to remain still. And, you know, for the rural people in Kenya, many of them, you know, they don't have electricity in their houses at night. The house can't be closed. People often sleep on the ground and things like that. It's a hazard that's there all their work, you know, all their lives. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that, you know, medical, medical support in Kenya can be erratic. I mean, there's not a bad network of clinics. But quite often, somebody will get bitten by a snake. You know, it's four hours walk to the clinic. Okay. When you get there, they may charge. They don't charge a lot, but the people may have no money. They may say you need to go to a hospital. You get to a regional hospital. They may not have antivenom. So the logistics, you know, are basically tough. And when you think about it, you know, antivenom is expensive. It's needed on an erratic basis by the desperate poor who can't afford to pay for treatment. Many companies, you know, pharmaceutical companies have moved out of manufacturing antivenom. So the supply is erratic. So people often, when they're bitten by a snake, the first person they go and visit is a local healer. Now, those guys don't have any, you know, genuine treatment for snake bite because the only treatment, if you've been, you know, envenomated with a dangerously large dose is antivenom. But they're quite skilled, some of these people, at spotting, you know, when the, when, the, when the case is getting bad. 
And what happens is they'll start some harmless rituals to sort of treat you. And then if they see you're, you know, you're starting to suffer, they then tell you for some imagined reason they can't do anything further. You're going to have to go to hospital, by which time a lot of time has elapsed. And many people die that, you know, in, in, a, in a Western country, I mean, in, you know, if they're bitten by a puff adder in, in, in Britain, if you're bitten by a pet puff adder, you're down to the hospital, you're getting first class medical treatment straight away. Whereas in, in Kenya, um, you know, people who suffer, they get these terrible things and get, you know, all the local things associated with that sort of bite and the medical treatment, the, you know, the long term medical treatment just isn't there. Yeah, it's a shame. So, you've seen a number of puff adders, I presume. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen a lot of puff adders. <laughs> yeah. In talking, and I'm asking this because Phil loves a puff adder. He keeps puff adders. Um, regionally, have you noticed uh, a difference in appearance? Yes, there is. Uh, there's, there's quite a, quite a lot of variation. In Highland East Africa, you get these very brightly coloured ones. You know, the males are sort of vivid yellow, and the and the females are sort of quite sort of reddish brown. Along the Rift Valley in Kenya and in Highland Tanzania, um, down in extreme southern Africa, down at the Cape, there's very nice black and yellow ones. And the other, the other interesting thing is, that, I mean, in parts of Kenya and, and not, especially in the northeast, Ethiopia and Somalia, you get these very, very large puff adders, absolutely gigantic ones, yeah. which get up to close to two meters. Now, that's a weird thing, because in the rest of Africa, a puff adder over sort of 1.2 meters is basically unknown. But in East Africa, as I say, they get up to sort of two meters long. And some people believe it's connected with the fact that they, they live mostly in semi-desert. And if they're that big, they can eat hares and they can eat small antelope like dick dick and so on. So, yeah, puff adders get gigantic parts of northeastern Africa. And, yeah, you get, as I say, you get this color variation. A few years ago, at, um, they had a very brightly colored puff adder at um, London Zoo. And I remember asking the, the guy there where it came from. And he said it was from Lake Nakuru in Kenya. And certainly you do get sort of really brightly colored ones there. Yeah, that's a that's a popular um that's a popular phenotype in the American or I'll say North American uh, uh collections, if you will. Is that, oh, that right that lake locality? Yeah, the lake locality and the bright brightly colored sort of black and yellow ones. Yep, they're they're attractive animals. Whereas I mean you go to West Africa and the puff adders, they're all pretty much the same color. But yeah, yeah they, they do vary. Yeah, I had a, a pair of puffs that were of non-specific Tanzanian locality. They were they were brought in probably this was maybe 15 years ago, so they were probably brought in 20 years ago right. from Tanzania as subadults, and they were almost six foot each, male and female. So, oh really? Yeah, that they were big. massive. Oh wow, massive. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, then uh, pretty, we wound up. There was a hurricane coming, and uh, I'm in South Florida. There's there was a hurricane coming, so we had to you know container all the venomous and lock it away and prevent mm. any kind of escape. And the pair got put together about two oh, days right. before the hurricane came, uh -huh. and then about seven months after the hurricane, she dropped like forty five babies. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was one I caught once in just on the sort of northeast side of Mount Kenya. 
And I'm trying to remember the exact figure. She had something like 150 babies, I think. Wow. I mean, when, when I collected her, she weighed seven and a half kilos. I mean, you could wow. see. That's the one. I wrote a book. I don't know if you know of it called Sun, Sand and Snakes. I have, we both There's, have that book. I have that book. Yeah. On the back cover of not, not the book club edition, but the, the original edition on the back cover, there's a picture of me holding her. Um, and as I say, yeah, she had a lot of babies. Wow. I, said, I think that's the greatest number of, of, of babies of any sort of that any uh, land vertebrate ever has. Wow. That number. Awesome. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, I want to go upstairs and grab the book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually uh, we're obviously going to at some point in this conversation talk about all of your writings, and that's that's the first book on the list. But but go on, please continue. So, um, apart from the puff adder, what's the other dangerous inverted comma dangerous venomous snakes that people encounter? Um, the one that's sort of almost pan African is the uh, the black neck spitting cobra. They're common. They occur almost throughout the savannas of Africa, except the extreme south. And th again, they're, they're a big hazard, like the puff adder. They come into houses at night, people get bitten, and they have this hideous cytotoxic venom causes sort of local tissue destruction. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's, that's uh, you know, one of the sort of, what, what, what am I gonna say? The, the bad news as far as rural people in Africa are concerned. And in the north, north of you know, north of the equator, we've also got the the carpet viper. There are several species of that, and they can be quite common in places. So that's another major snake bite hazard. Okay. Um, have you um, had anything to do with any venom initiatives out there? <clears throat> um, well, when when I used to work at the snake park we used to collect venom on a regular basis and that was sent to the veterinary labs for research, but only in a small scale. And I, I, of course I, I knew Jonathan Leakey. He used to collect venom in large quantities for the production Ooh. of anti-venom, but I'm not directly involved in it. No, apart, apart from those things there. Okay. I've seen you um, cause you're on Facebook and you have a ridiculous amount of friends on Facebook. <laughs> yes. I'm just ridiculous. I think it's nearly, it's, it's certainly over four and a half thousand. Nearly at the limit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm one of those people and I see you, you produce quite a lot of educational material like um, identification posters for venomous yes. snakes and yeah. flashcards, venomous snakes. Yeah. What, what was the impetus behind that and, and who do they go to? Well, it's, it's, you know, I just like spreading my knowledge. I mean, that's the thing about being a teacher. I mean, in the early days, I, I, I wrote a fair number of scientific papers, but I thought to myself, well, they only reach small numbers of people. And I wanted to reach a lot of people or at least, you know, make, make the stuff accessible widely you know scientific papers are not available in shops many people don't know about them whereas a book at least is in a shop or you know on the internet and somebody somebody might find it right so basically i wanted to spread spread the knowledge and we, we've done a few things i mean the, the first thing i i really wanted to do was the dangerous snakes book um as, as far as sort of information goes and i did that with bill branch and then i thought well i want to do the the east african uh, field guide which is it was recently revised 
the funny thing was, I mean, all the guys I worked with in Kenya that I knew, Jonathan Leakey, James Ash, people like Alex Mackay, Ionides and so on, they could have all produced a book, but most of them hardly ever put pen to paper. I mean, Johnny never put pen to paper. I mean, I'm not complaining because it left a way open for me to do it. Those, <laughs> yeah, those, right. guys, those guys could have done it. And but the, um, your field guide, the East African field guide, yeah. I mean, I destroyed my copy. I read it so much. It was <laughs> literally, it's a good job you revised it and republished because my well, original. the big original one with a comedian the, on the front. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've yeah. still got it, but it is, I, I <laughs> yes. cannot I cannot think how many times I've read and reread that. Um, particularly, I mean, when I first was getting into Venomous, that was like a Bible to me. I, I was literally, <laughs> there was so little information around about various species. And, and that, that was, it was an absolute godsend. It's a fabulous work. That's very kind of you to say so. I mean, it was a, a great moment in my life when it was published, because as I said, I mean, you know, all these guys who I work with, they, I thought they'd do it anyway. You know, I finished, I, I left Kenya and I went to work in other places had kids, had a career and so on. And all the while I thought I'd like to do the East African guide, but, you know, somebody else is going to do it. And, you know, I mustn't lose too much sleep over it. Yeah. And there was, a, there was an interesting young man called Emmanuel Gallman. I don't know if you ever heard of him. I mean, his mother was a, quite a famous conservationist. She's still alive, Cookie Gallman. And he started corresponding with me in the, in the 80s. And, and he knew so much. I thought this guy is going to basically write the book. He was always gathering data from me. And then I stopped hearing from him. And then I suddenly heard he died. Oh. And the poor guy was killed by a puff adder. Oh. And I mean, he was bitten at the age of 17. Now, I was also bitten by a puff adder at 17. But uh, I feel you know, I've I was, let myself down. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was lucky. I mean, I lost a finger on that hand. You can probably see there. Oh, wow. Um, oh. My, right, my right index finger oh. was lost to a lost to a puff adder but emmanuel was bitten at the age of 17 and he suffered i think they think it was probably an anaphylactic reaction wow. he died in a very short time so anyway that was very very sad anyway then i'm down in botswana then we moved up to ethiopia and i thought time to do that field guide and i was still convinced somebody else would do it but but nobody did so i wrote to you know some friends and colleagues james ash uh, bob drews Kim Howell and said, "Do you want to you want to do this book?" And they they were enthusiastic about it. So we uh, approached it, a, a publisher, and they said, "Yeah." It's such a beast of a book, though. It's yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot um, of species in there. I mean, it's such a big under. It's not like doing the the reptiles and amphibians of the UK, which you could probably no, write in an afternoon. It's, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's definitely yes. a lot in there. It, it's well, we were dealing with four four hundred plus species, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean. There are things in there, even now, that have never been photographed alive. I mean, we had to scrabble to get the pictures. I mean, I was, I was going to ask you that. Did you take a lot of the pictures yourself, or were they sourced um, from other people? The team took most of them. If you look at the photo credits for the first one, um, a lot of them were by Bob Drews, a few by Kim Howell, quite a lot by me. Um, and a few and a few by James and a few other people helped as well. I mean, this was when we were preparing it, it was in the 1990s. You know, in those days, 
email had really hadn't really got going electronic communication and stuff like that you couldn't send pictures and stuff like that it was all slides and a matter of writing to people you knew who had photographic collections and saying do you have this do you have that and we borrowed stuff from all over the place for the second edition it's it's far easier i mean we you know i was in contact with a lot of people i mean two of the original team basically dropped out um and so the new team was me and kim howell and a guy called harold hinkler and also um michelle um menegon and michelle had worked in tanzania and he'd taken a lot of good pictures so and also you know i knew from the internet from other books what sort of pictures people had so the second one was much easier but there still are a lot of things that have never been photographed alive uh, and the other thing is, um, which a lot of our listeners wouldn't have no concepts of whatsoever, I presume you were shooting film, not DSLR. Yeah. yeah. So you didn't yep. know when you was in the field, you didn't know if you'd got a decent picture or not. Oh, that, that was the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I took I took slides and, you know, you take the pictures and then you'd send it off. And then they'd come back and you'd start going through them and your heart would sink as the pictures got <laughs> progressively worse and you thought, oh, God. So, yeah, I mean, that, the, the, you know, the digital photography has completely changed the game. You can photograph the animal on the spot. You can look and see what you've got. If it's not good, then you can have, you can have another go. You and... can also take five hundred pictures in a matter of minutes <laughs> <laughs> instead of the th instead of the thirty six pictures that That's you right. were allowed reel, to before. Yeah. Reel of thirty six. I mean, I've still got all my slides. That's great. And I mean, I'm glad I never threw any of them away because a lot of them, you know, underexposed, overexposed, or things like that. But you can scan them and, and tidy them up. Hundred percent. So you know, you got to. You got to take yeah, all those on. slides and do. You got to take all those slides and do a coffee table book, a big, high color, high focus coffee table book. Yeah, I've I've sometimes wondered about doing that actually, but the trouble is, the thing that always grips me is, you know, you've got to get the information to the public. A coffee table book would be nice to look at. Probably sell a bit better than than the field guides. I mean, they don't I, they don't sell very much. I I think if he was particularly with the venomous stuff, I think there's such a strong following. If you was to do a bespoke images of Bittis or Ethereus or something yeah. like that, I think that would sell like hotcakes. Absolutely. Yeah, it might. Oh, well, I'll bear, I'll bear that one in mind when something, I retire. Something for you to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. And I, you know, not wishing to labour the point, but for people that don't have the book, immediately go and get the book. Try and get the original one as well, if you can. Well, I'll say this, if I can cut you off real quick. So at my old employment many moons ago, they had a copy that I must have flipped through 500 times. And it was also like nippers falling apart. So I tried to find another one that was in good shape over the years. And it, it was either really expensive or in too tattered for my hmm. personal use. But I do have a new hardback coming in the mail as we speak from Amazon. So if you're listening to this, go on Amazon, buy the new hardcover. Was he the, East, the original East African field guide? No, your 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 most recent. Oh, the uh, most recent one. Yes, the, the most recent. Yeah, let me just grab a copy down. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I was I was wondering if you guys would uh, let me plug this. Oh, there it is, a tome. Look at the tome. Ah, oh, fantastic. Reptiles and amphibians of Northeast Africa, yeah. I mean, this one, it's what about... We'll, 
what sorry, yeah, what, sorry we'll, go on. what we'll do i said what we phil will do the work and i'll take the credit <laughs> but no. what, what we'll do we'll put a link to all your publications when we put this out so oh, people great. can go straight to it and then go on amazon yeah. and get them i just yeah. want to say yes get the new one because it's updated and it's well got the, the this new this one is a different area though of course this is northeast africa that's oh. the thing. Ah, ah okay okay yeah. okay you're the most recent edition of the uh sorry i'm plugging myself relentlessly here that's the the uh revamp the 2018 version you guys have probably got that i've got that yeah okay yeah okay and the original one has got the, the comedian on the front but my, my point is the original one the photography in it is excellent All and right. you've, you've got to take on board that they couldn't check anything when they was taking those pictures. There was yeah. no just looking in the back of a camera and getting all the ISO readout and all of that. It was just taking a and they're pin sharp. A lot of those pictures are really, really good for you know for shooting on film in situ, you know, in difficult habitats because it's often sandy. The light's really yeah. strong. It's not easy to take photographs. So it is incredible bit of work. I think one of the things that made a real difference, you know, with with the di digital stuff was, as you say, I mean, you could take as many as you like, and you know straight away what you've got. But also, the cameras, my camera's got a built-in, very reliable flash. Yeah. Now, in the old days, of course, you you mounted the the flash on the hot shoe, and a lot of the time, you know, the flash was erratic. I never really perfected it, but at one time, I sort of reverted to using sort of photo floods. So, you know, I'd get the snake and light it artificially and then and then take pictures but i was never very satisfied with the, the quality of the color but having a having a built-in flash makes such a difference oh it, it does i mean I, I don't mind i don't mind a slave you know something like that the trouble with is if you're photographing in poor light or at night most yeah. snakes are quite reflective so you do yeah get well quite, yes yes you, you yeah. get a, quite a, a false in, false images but with yeah. digital stuff you've got photoshop even yes, my pictures, yes. This, this is exactly it. Yeah, exactly. Even, yeah. even my pictures look okay with Photoshop. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got image image stabilized little my lenses or image stabilized now. You know, it's it's just so much easier. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. It really is. So um keep dragging you back to my favorite subject because it's no, no, you're welcome. <laughs> it's all about me. Um <laughs> so one of the things I like about the East African book is at the time there was when i was first getting into venomous there was no real information about a theorist mm -hmm. and that was probably the first book that had a many species with information about them um i just you know i just wondered how many species have of, of a theorist have you seen in the wild only one only one only one, only oh. one. yes no. I've, I, I've never collected one oh, I, I saw one in uh, in Ghana in West Africa, which, as I approached it, managed to hide in the undergrowth. And I've never I've never collected the Kenyan species. I've been into wow. the field looking looking for them, but right. without luck. Oh, I'm su I'm genuinely surprised. <laughs> now there's some gaps out there, which one of these days I shall get around to to remedying. But the thing is, the country I really like is Savannah, and right. uh, semi desert. And of course, you don't get atheris there. No. So, uh, no. so yeah incredible yeah. so what about the bitter species how many what sort of bitters have you seen just puff adders and the the kenya horn viper and the the little um 
horned adder from Botswana. Oh, okay. Yeah, and no, I haven't I haven't yet collected a gaboon viper or a, a rhino horn. Wow. Well, I've you know I've I've been out looking for them. I did find in Ethiopia we did find two bites parviocula but they were Excellent. both dead they were dead on the road you know wow. out with colin tilbury we were down in the right country driving up the road and we saw these two snakes on the road but unfortunately a villager in front of us had found them and beaten them both to death oh, one of the one of the saddest moments of my life yeah what was it oh. like what's it like herping in that area what, what's the sort of terrain and, and forest I mean, forest is always a tough proposition because there are so many places the snakes can hide. You know, mm. in the semi-desert, there's a limit. They can't get very high. They don't get down very far. There isn't thick leaf litter. They've got to hide in holes or underground cover. But in forests, I mean, in Africa particularly, collecting is heartbreak. I mean, I once spent a couple of weeks in Ghana up on the Kwahu Ridge trying to find um, gaboons. And uh, rhino horns, and I didn't, I hardly found anything at all. And uh, yeah, we we went out collecting. Um, yeah, we we went driving at night, collecting in the day. Got the guys looking for us. We just didn't find any. I mean, they're there, all right, you know. Right. But they're, uh, but they're they're, they're doing what they do best. Yeah, that's right. They're they're yeah. staying still. So on that note, uh, you were one of the co-authors describing Bitis um, Harina, correct? That's right, Pitis Herena. Yeah, yeah. That's right, uh, yeah. Do you yeah. want to give us a little info on that for those listeners that aren't yeah. too hitched very in, to the new bitis? <laughs> interesting story. I mean, there was a guy called Malcolm Largen, who was uh, a British guy, but he was the herpetologist at the was a zoology lecturer at the University of Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and he wrote a checklist of the snakes of Ethiopia before I got there. Um, he sent me a copy of it and he had pictures of this weird uh, bitis and uh, he he said to me I think this is a hybrid between parviocular and um, puff adder okay and there was just the one specimen it came from a town called Dodola which is in the sort of in the mountains in the southeast but the funny thing about Dodola is it's high altitude grassland where you wouldn't expect a big snake like that, apart from maybe puff adders. And now, if you say high altitude grassland, you're referring to is it almost like plateaus, like yeah, in between... it's, high, it's high high plateau basically, okay. yeah, Excellent. high plateau. And um, and then a few years later, there was a guy called um, I'm trying to remember his name now, Evan Birchley. He was a American ornithologist, and he was driving through the Herena Forest, which is on the south side of the Barley Mountains, where the high grassland drops off into into firstly high altitude forest and then sort of broadland forest lower down saw this snake on the road and took a photograph of it and it reached me via a friend and as soon as i saw it i thought crikey this thing is it's the same as the the specimen that malcolm largen had a picture of the wow. preserved specimen from the dollar that's awesome and um i got in contact with uh David Gower at the Natural History Museum in London. And he said, you know, the fact that there's a now live one been photographed and there's a specimen in the museum indicates that it's probably a valid species. So he said, let's describe it. So he got, you know, the Natural History Museum borrowed the specimen from Copenhagen 
and uh, we put together a description and the, that particular one was, was quite damaged but we were helped by a really good artist a guy called ed wade and uh, ed ed basically was able to sort of essentially reconstruct the animal and make drawings of it as it would look in life and one of the guys at the museum uh, managed to do some uh, scanning some uh, some scanning of the bones of the skull and things like that so although we've only got one type the one in with the one in copenhagen we had the pictures as well and it looks you know we thought okay it looks like a genuine species we'll we'll go with it so we 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 wrote the paper and it was accepted excellent but excellent. i mean i'm sure since that date a few other people have seen them there was a, a swedish guy called jonas arvidsson jonas arvidsson and he went there and he managed to collect one wow uh, which he which he then released um, I'm I'm sure some enthusiastic pet keepers have been out there looking for them, oh, but sure. un, uh, unlike Parviocular, they don't seem to have appeared in the uh, they don't seem to have appeared in the pet trade yet. So yeah. I don't think anyone's got one out. Yeah. Give it time, there'll be somebody from the Czech Republic yeah. on a plane as we speak. <laughs> well, I was I was going to say is uh, prior to I think up until maybe last year, maybe the year before, sometime during the pandemic. Um, I think the record was only like 12 sightings ever, something to that extent. Of, like, or what, of, of Herena? Yeah. Or Parviocular? No, no, uh, no of Herena, yeah. I don't, there's hardly any sightings at yeah. all, basically. It's yeah. maybe, maybe eight or ten, yeah. something like that. Yeah. You know, And then it's like, well, do you count each individual specimen or do you count the people that were standing around it watching? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it, yeah. it's interesting because we used to, in, in the United States, we used to get a lot of Kenyan shipments back in, say, 2009, 2010, maybe even earlier. And we got a, a ton of legitimate CITES legal parviocula. And, oh, uh, right. And no one... From pet, Ethiopia, from uh, well, see that was the that was the kicker is that right. they were Kenyan shipments. So, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So who who the hell really knows? But uh, and this was the same. This is right. This is right before the ashes cobra was described. It was oh, maybe right. uh, three or four months. Was the, the last shipment of parviocular we got was right before the ashes cobra was described, and right. we had gotten some ashes cobra in there. They were imported as uh, negricolus. Right. I actually yeah. I actually still have one. Uh -huh. um, which is wild. I'm pretty sure it might it might be the only one left in the country. But in terms of the parviocula, no one kept them and no one bred them. And the guys that did breed them, they kind of, eh, whatever, we'll just get more. And they All never right. came back. So they now they came back. They never All came right. back. So now there's they're very much a pretty penny here in the States. All right. I mean, I know a few people here in Britain who keep them. But uh, I, was, I was told informally, I don't know if it's true, that they don't, you know, they didn't breed very well. Yeah, There's... and I heard from friends, some friends that had them that said they didn't breed at all. And then I had some acquaintances or friends of friends who said they bred like puff adders. They just right. kept kept going. But right. those guys either kept the the offspring to themselves in, in yeah. small litters or they shipped them off to Europe for money. All right. Yeah. 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 That's as you say, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Herena will appear one of these days. The interesting thing about in the in the Bali Mountains there, there's also a specimen collected by the same guy that collected the the Bitis Herena. There's a, a specimen of a Parviocular, and as far as we know, it's the only formally collected specimen of Parviocular from east of the Rift Valley. All the rest are in the southwest, yeah, in the forests in the forests of the southwest. But I've also seen. 
and there was a photograph Ethiopian guy sent me of a snake that looks like it's a bit worrying a cross between Herena and Parviocula. Wow. It's a very poor photograph, but he met this snake on a path and took some pictures of it and sent them to me. And I thought, I wonder what's going on there. Because, I mean, you know, the, the other three, or I say the other the other four big bitis, big vipers, are all very widespread by and large. But those two in Ethiopia, Parviocula and Arena, have got very small ranges. And you just wonder what's going on. Um now, there's been there's been some DNA analysis, and I, I'm trying to remember the relationship. I think, as far as I recall, Parviocula clusters with Nasocornis, um, and I th the the implication is, you, you know, at one time the forest in Central Africa was much more extensive, right? And it seems as though the ancestor of Nasocornis and Parviocula was in that forest and then country became drier the forest disappeared and the ones in ethiopia remained isolated and they have evolved into parviocula incredible but as the herena awesome. no one knows that that's yeah gonna be, that's going to be an interesting thing yeah and the specimens that were found on the south side of that rift is that's that's still that's the on the ethiopian side not the kenyan side right yeah yeah, yeah. what you're talking about herena no, I was talking about Parviocula. Oh yeah, no, they're they're entirely confined to Ethiopia. Okay, They've never never been found outside the country. Interesting. That's why when you mentioned that you'd had some from Kenya, I mean, somebody must have got them and taken them through. Yeah, somebody fudged some paperwork at some point. No, no, it happens. I mean, at one time, you know, Kenya was not allowing the export of any reptiles, but people were still getting those little um, Kenya montane vipers. Mm. And they were obviously being collected in Kenya and then taken through to Tanzania where export was legal. I would love some of those. Well, I think as they, I, I, somebody told me they went, they went to um, the, the big reptile show at Ham. Uh, and, pe yeah. and people there had Bitis Worthing Tonai, the Kenya Horn Viper there. I, I, yeah, I've seen them there. All right. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, at the, at the latter uh, Ham shows, I can't think of many species of bitters that haven't been there. And the same oh. with um, same with the theorists as well. Just mm. everything is is there. Yeah. Well, again, they, I heard a story. Some, there was a, someone told me they went to Ham and there was a, a breeder there and, and she had every virtually every species of atheris, you know, and she had youngsters, yeah. wow. adults, whatever. So yeah. the enthusiasts are out there. Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, yeah, I mean, I was going to say they're they're fascinating. They're, you know, they're snakes that basically fascinate people. I know on our Facebook page, if I put a picture of an attractive frog, it might get sort of thirty likes. <laughs> you know, I, I put an atheris there, and it gets three hundred. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to going to be honest. I mean, I've kept uh, four, five species of uh, different species of atheris, um, and one of them, back in the day, you identified for me. All right. Yeah. Which, he was, one, which one was he, that? He was very kind. I got some uh, presumably wild caught um, atheris, and I wasn't 100% sure what they were. And I thought, I'll just 
I'll email Stephen Spools. He's probably way too important and busy <laughs> to reply. And to, to, your, to your credit, and you didn't know me from Adam, you replied straight away with a really excellent um, key to seeing if it was Broadly Eye or not. Oh, um, right. He thought it might be Broadly Eye. Yeah, and it, yeah. it was. It was. It was, yeah. 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 So, so, but it's very kind of you to reply because uh, okay. there are a lot of people out there that wouldn't bother so i appreciate that uh the herpetological community is a small one and we gotta we need to stick together yeah but i mean that's an interesting interesting species complex i mean what you might call loosely the squamiga group okay yeah. there's a whole lot of different species have been described broadly i and this new one what's it mongoensis and um uh, i can't remember the other species but basically they're all found in the in in the sort of great central african forest and no one knows whether there's they're just sort of color varieties or whether they're you know they're genuinely reproductively isolated and are separately evolving species so it's a you know it's it's a at one time you know sometimes somebody will work it all out they'll get a, a reasonable spread of specimens and look at the dna see what you've got but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little doubtful whether things like broadly eye and that subocularis and things like that really are separate species or yeah. whether, I mean, there's no doubt about it. You can pick them out. You look at them and think, yeah, okay, they, they do look different. But whether they just represent a variant or something like that. Yeah, I think uh, subocularis was somebody just needing something for their PhD to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, it's, I, the way, it's the way to quick fame, isn't it? It, it, yeah. it really yeah. is. It, you, take, you look at things in isolation. I mean, there are many things like that in African herpetology. Well, in other, other, you know, other countries as well. I mean, for example, you know, the sand snakes, the... Uh, the sort of the, the cobras and things like that. You take things like the forest cobras have all been split. The little geckos, the Ligodactylus geckos. I mean, yep. dozens of species have been described. But you look at it and think, maybe it's just a climb, you know, increasing distance, you get increasing variation. And people sort of do it with species that aren't so well known. But I mean, you take you take an animal, for example, like a really well-known charismatic animal like the African elephant, for example. There's endless debates very sort of often very sort of emotional debate about whether there are two species of elephant you know the savannah and the forest element elephant or whether they're simply you know variety you know just, just different varieties dependent upon that on the habitat they live in right so if you can't if they can't decide on something as big and charismatic as that what hope do we have for reptiles well it's also easier to it's also easier to split things when it is not a big charismatic land mammal, you know? Yes, yes exactly. That, <laughs> yeah. that's, that, that was the point I was going to make. Yeah, actually. Yeah. I sort of drifted off the point. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, if you split if you split off a few Ligodactylus, nobody's going to start worrying about it. Whereas if you start trying to split up leopards or elephants or something like that, oh. people get very hot, hot under the collar. Sure. I, uh, recently in Europe, as you, as you probably know, they split all the bent-toed geckos from one species into, I think, seven different species. That oh, right. cost me an absolute fortune in travel, because when I'd photographed one species and thought I had that on my list, they then, overnight, I had to go to 
different islands and different right. parts of Greece to try and, you know, these academics don't think of the damage they do to my, <laughs> to my pocket. Yeah. They're just trying to, they're just trying to make it clearer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had the same with the, with the original field guide and then several species that were in there were then the status was then changed and the East African form was different, which meant we couldn't use the photo from somewhere else because it was now a different species. I mean, recently, there's a very good herpetologist in, in Texas called Eli Greenbaum. He's done a lot of work in the Congo. And uh, he recently split the big, uh, the big broad-headed tree snakes, what used oh. to be called Boiga, now yeah. Toxicodryas. And I mean, yeah. it was Boiga or Toxicodryas blanding eye. He's yeah. now split it into two species. And so the pictures I have from West Africa, you know, can't be used for the East Africa. And so on, you know. <laughs> Same thing with the, the powdery tree snake as well. That's been split into two species. So, you know, it's all very well if it's all one species. You've got a picture of a West African one. It's better than no picture. But if it's been split into two species, you can't go using the West African picture and saying, here's something that looks very similar. Yeah, I completely. Now, Taking you back to Bittis, I'm going to have to ask you, at 17 years old, what was it like to get bitten? Oh, it was just an adventure. That's the next quote on a T-shirt. That's my, my parents my parents were really upset it didn't worry me too much i mean this thing bit me okay i was i've been handling it i've been giving a talk at school and i went to put it back in the cage i normally use a pair of surgical tongs to hold the head i get grab stick and then hold the head with the surgical tongs and then pick it up and i mean this is one of the things that one of the guys at the snake park taught me he said never bring your hand near a venomous snake unless its head is secured i didn't bother i just pressed the head down as of course i brought my hand down it just jerked its head free and bit me in the finger And i mean i did everything wrong i tied a bootlace around my finger i injected anti-venom directly into the into the bite site then i went down to hospital and the guy there didn't know much about snake bite he sort of looked in his book and he said oh puff adder's not really deadly um, gave me a tetanus shot or something and sent me home. I mean, wow. in, the, in the night, the, the finger just swelled up enormously. There was a great blood blister. So then I went back to hospital. I mean, they had a look at it and said, oh, you've got a problem here. And they, they lanced a blood blister. And then underneath it, gangrene had started. Oh. They tried to save it. I mean, I spent a couple of months in hospital, which was fairly tedious. But wow. it I didn't trouble me. You know, I didn't sort of worry about it. I mean, I was 17, you know. Yeah. Um, they didn't worry me that much. So my parents were really upset, especially when the, uh, the, you know, it became obvious it was going to have to be amputated. They couldn't save it, but I was quite relaxed about it. I mean, the the bite that scared me most was a number of years later when we were in Botswana, and um, my we my son noticed a couple of boomslangs mating in a tree, and I went out there to sort of collect them, and I got one of them as I was changing in my hand on the head. I gashed my thumb. I don't know whether it was on a fang or just a tooth. Because boomfang's got a very invidious venom, you know, it causes oh, yeah. internal hemorrhaging. And uh, that really worried me because I've got a wife and kids, you know. Yeah. Got here am I mucking about with dangerous snakes. I mean, fortunately, nothing happened. I mean, I, we were in southeast Botswana, and they actually have the anti-venom in South Africa, in Johannesburg. So I rung the hospital and said I was coming down, and we drove down. And when I got there, they did a clotting test and said, "There's no indication that you've had any uh, any venom in, in, you know, injected at all, so you can go wow. back." Wow. 
Excellent. Um, but it was a, it, you know, it was a, that was a frightening time. Because I suddenly thought, I've got responsibilities. At 17, you don't worry about your responsibilities. I just think that 100% highlights the difference in society. I know I sound old, but, you know, these days, if someone gets a paper cut, they have to have two months off work and some counselling. And <laughs> you got bitten by a puff adder and you just walked it off. I think that is amazing. Wow. May, may I ask, the uh, obviously the boom slang was not an envenomation, therefore you didn't have any issues, but what was the what was the feeling like from the puff? Oh, it's very painful. I mean, it's hideously painful, actually. Yeah. I mean, initially, at first, it was just sort of dull pain, but then it got worse and worse. It was like being hit with a hammer, you know, as if your finger was being subjected to sort of repeated blows from a hammer. It was very, very painful. That first night was really, really bad. I mean, I think all I had was paracetamol or something like that. You know? um, by the morning, when I got wow. back into hospital, I mean, they had, more, they had stronger painkillers there, but by then, I didn't really need it. But that first few hours was very, very painful. Wow incredible see you uk produces proper gnarly herpetologists <laughs> that's true that is very very true <laughs> wow absolutely awesome um can we ask a, a, a dumb question what's your yeah, favorite what's your favorite snake that you've worked with or encountered or just in general probably the puff adder yeah, my man. Odd though it sounds, I like puff adders. I mean, to me, apart from the fact that one bit me, they epitomise to me the country I most like. You know, African savanna. Yeah, they sort of. And if you've got puff adders, you've got wild land. Yeah. But they don't. They don't coexist well with humans. Although, having said that, I mean, their camouflage is so good that you can often be very near one and you just don't see it. And I mean, a few years ago, I was in Nairobi and I gave a talk at a uh, a primary school. And after the talk, the headmistress came up to me and said, oh, we, we killed a snake in the grounds here a couple of uh, months ago. And she showed me a picture of it. And it was a fair-sized puff adder. And this was right in the suburbs. And the snake had obviously been living in the grounds of the school for a few years. No one had ever seen it. Yeah. Then eventually it did get seen. Their camouflage is just so good. I remember Johan Marais once telling me a story of some guys who were doing research in southern Africa on puff adders. And they um, they fitted them with... Uh, with uh, they chipped them basically so they could detect where they were. And he said mm -hmm. quite often they'd go out with the with the detector and the signal told them they were within a meter of the snake and they couldn't see it. Wow. This is the so, amazing thing. They were they were that well hidden. And the other thing he told me about was these guys tested the reactions of these snakes. Because you know the usual perception is there's a puff adder, an unsuspecting farmer walks along, treads on it, and gets bitten. But it seems they're not that keen to bite. And what these guys did is they had a Wellington boot filled with uh, filled with soil or something. So it was something like the weight of a human foot. And they were thumping these snakes. And the snakes just sat there. They It was almost as if they knew that if you bite, you engage with a human, it's going to end in death. So basically, they were trying to make these snakes bite. And they wouldn't do it. Fascinating. Yeah, I, I find that... Um... I've not been to the, I've herped around the world. I've been quite lucky, but I've, for some reason, I've not herped Africa yet. Uh, yet. Yet. <laughs> yet. Um, yeah. I, and I've seen Phil's collection of puff adders, and I can't imagine how the camouflage works because they are so bright. They're, you know, they're, they're jet black with bright yellow. 
I can't imagine what habitat that that. Really it's just the grass, man. It's just it's it's, it's, it's the yeah. grass. I mean, the pattern the pattern breaks it up. I mean, it's one of those things where when you look, it's there, but if you look away, it's not. I mean, in the in in our field guide, there's um there's a picture of somewhere of a puff adder lying on the ground on a sort of grass, and if you look carefully, you can see it, but if you don't, you miss it. You know, they are the pattern just basically breaks up the outline, so you don't see the snake. Yeah. 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 No, they're they're well camouflaged. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, if a human being encounters a puff adder and they don't like the puff adder, that's that's the end. The snake cannot escape. It's not fast enough. So, if you know, if you if you're basically relying on camouflage to keep you alive all your life, your camouflage has got to be good. Yeah. Hundred percent. So, talking of camouflage, I'm going to open the floodgates to Phil and ask about. Oh, fossorial burrowing asps. Have, you, enc yeah. have you encountered many of the attractaspis? Yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I have found six or seven species of attractaspis. Oh, my days. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Do you recall yeah, which think, ones? Oh, yeah. Um, in East Africa, in Ethiopia and Kenya, phallax. In uh, Ghana, um, Dahomeensis irregularis and Atarima. Excellent. And in, in Southern Africa, Bibronii and Duerdenii. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, those are my uh my 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 side crush, if you will. Oh right, yeah. Yeah. So I've I've yeah. been trying to keep a small group of them for a few years now, and uh it's proved quite daunting. Um trying to make it as naturalistic as I can in terms of dirt in a tub, you know. Um I'm almost positive I had one Dahomeensis. Um, it, la it only lived for about six to eight months, but now I've got a regularis and they seem to be doing well and seem to be doing something. But I kept the brony many, many moons ago, and it's a completely different animal in terms of uh, forgiveness and husbandry. Mm -hmm. The Bibroni are so much more uh, carefree, if you will. They kind of don't right. care. They don't, they'll eat, they'll poop, they'll drink, whatever. Yeah. But the irregularis are so much more elusive and it's, it's you're, you're very lucky yeah. to have seen that many species. It's awesome. I've not, I've never kept irregularis, but I mean in Ghana I kept a homiensis. I mean, in East Africa I've had phallax, and uh, in Botswana I kept both Bibronii and Duerdenii. I I never did much good with them. I mean, as you know, I mean for them to be happy, you need a somewhere where they can bury themselves. Right, right. And um, they they did eat actually. They'll take they they take skinks and things like that, and they'll take a they'll take blind snakes and wolf snakes and so on. Yeah. Um, there was one occasion in Ghana once. I, I went out one night. I found a big Dahomeensis outside, and I put it into a cage. And I'd forgotten that in that cage I had a uh, an Elapsoide, a garter snake. And oh, I came really? back to find, find the garter snake eating the attractus. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the, they're not the sort of you know. I, I found them interesting to sort of keep briefly, but I never sort of bothered to to keep them long term. Either yeah. I preserved them or let them go. You know. Right. What uh, what species yeah, of Elapsoidea was it? It was that was the West African one. Um, now you're asking, Semiannulata yes. mobusii. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I have a, I have one lone female uh, Sundavals, and oh, uh, right. uh -huh. that animal. I, I hope to work with more of that genus in the future because it's a garbage disposal. Anything oh, I yeah. put in front of it, they just scarf it down, and yeah, it's they just eat it. Yeah, yeah. All it's right. the it's the yeah. perfect uh, uh, pet sized elapid. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, people tend not to keep them because they, they their favorite food is snakes. Yeah. So uh, if you're going to keep one of them, you've got to have a supply of snakes. Yeah, right. Very cool, man. Very cool. Yeah. It looks like we're gonna have to get you a t-shirt as well that says Dirt Snake Mafia. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna have to get him a, a Dirt Snake Mafia t-shirt. Well, we'll, I'm just gonna send a big box of them to the UK and you can disperse them at your will, Nipper. Okay. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, can we bring? Can we jump back to books for a minute? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Snakes of Masemara. You want to oh, go yeah. into that? I feel like it's it's such a it's such a niche book, but so intriguing to someone who's not familiar with the region all right have you got a hard copy or just a or did you download one no i downloaded one and, and i know one. i think yeah. johan has some hard copies in his online store and i'm due to yeah. to do a big shipment of stuff from him because i gotta all get right. some uh, tyrone ping's new books and stuff so but i, I have right. the kindle all right yeah no i mean that was basically i was sponsored to do that and one of the things, one of my sort of pet projects is, uh, which is not sort of complete yet, is I'd like to do guides for the big conservation areas of, of Kenya. And I started at the Mara was a good place to start. And I was looking for some sponsorship. And I wrote to a guy who runs a, uh, who I knew vaguely, who runs uh, camps in the conservancies and asked him about sponsorship. I mean, Richard Branson was one of his clients. So I thought maybe Richard Branson will sponsor me. So when I wrote to this guy, his name's Jake Greaves Cook. He runs this, um, what are they called, Game Watchers. And Jake said, how would Richard Branson will sponsor you? You know, and he said, if you can produce it, you know, we'll fund the cost of that. And um, then we give it to our clients. So basically I went out to Kenya, you know, at their expense, spent a, a couple of weeks in the Mara catching and photographing stuff. I had pictures of a lot of the snakes and lizards, but what I hadn't done in the Mara was was frog work. So we went in the rainy season to get pictures of the frogs. And then I, you know, I put the book together here and my, my college, the very kindly, the um the lady who does the um the, the setting up, the basically put it into book form for me. And then we got it printed, in fact, by the college print shop and sent out to Kenya. And I mean Jake gives it to, you know, to his his clients but as i say you could you know he after a while because at first he, he basically was giving it to his clients but also selling it and i yeah. said would would he mind if we made a, a free copy available and he said that's fine so yeah you can now from our website you can now download a free copy of it excellent i'm yeah, quite sort it... of pleased with it because it's a useful guide but the funny thing is i mean not many people know about it. I mean, this is the thing that always gets me. You know, I'll be talking to a safari guide and they say, oh, we saw this in Namara. And I'll say, well, you know, have you got our book? Oh, no, I don't know anything about it. I mean, it's free. It's available for a download. And that's Kenya's sort of premier conservation area. Every year they have, I can't remember the exact figure. I'm, I'm just guessing. Well, I think it's a couple of million visitors, you know. Yeah. That's a book that every, every guide in that area should have. But not, you know, they don't all have it. Yeah, I feel like at least for Americans, it's a very popular, both uh, physical hunting and photo hunting safaris. Yeah, you know? and right, and people yeah. they want to they want to go to the tribal lands and they want to see the tribal dances and and they want to experience you know the Mara and all of its completeness. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's a great book. Yeah, no, very kind of you to say so. And I say, I mean, eventually, I'll, I hope to do a few more when I find time. Awesome. And uh, since we're on the topic of organizations, did you want to touch on, um, uh, my phone died, uh, the 
I'm going to butcher the name, the BII, excuse me, Biodiversity Institute. What, what is it? Um, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. Do you mean yes, that G GBIF? Yes, yes. Yeah. Very, very useful uh, source of information that. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you go there, are we talking about the same website? Yeah, and it's got G G GBIF. Countless, count, countless experts, and, and you're one of them. Oh, right. The other one, of course, everyone talks about here is iNaturalist. Yeah, yeah. Do you know that one? Yeah, yeah I mean, those those are tremendous sources of information. I mean, when we were doing this, the the, the big guide, the, uh, the Northeast Africa guide, I, mean, mm -hmm. I used the GBIF a lot because you look up a species, and then you look at the records from the, the countries we were interested in. I mean, this this book basically covers Sudan, South Sudan, Egypt, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, and Somalia. And the specimens from that country, you know, the, the verified museum specimens, are scattered far and wide. And GBIF proved extremely useful. You know, you'd put a species name up and put, say, you know, country Sudan and see what you got. And there was good stuff there. I mean, not everything is there. I mean, I heard by word of mouth that there was a very good collection in, in Bonn, in Germany. And in fact, I wrote to them and they did send me a printout of their holdings. But, um, you know, they haven't uploaded that to the GBIF. And likewise, the, the um, i trying to remember its name now. What's the name of the museum in Chicago? Field Museum. Field yeah, Museum. Field. They won't release specific information about locality. So, for example, they had uh, specimens there, you know, night adders from the Sudan, but they didn't say where. Having said that, however, there's a really helpful guy there called Alan Resitar. When I wrote to him, he said, look, I'll get you a printout of the holdings with exact localities. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, in the old days. You know what it's like in the old days. You had to go to the museums. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when I did the the first paper I ever published was a checklist of the snakes of Kenya, and that was in 1978. And what I did was, I mean, I obviously spent a lot of time in the museum in Nairobi, going through the collection there. Then I was over here. I went through the the, the British Museum collection. And I got Bob Drews, old friend of mine, to go through the collection of the California Academy of Sciences. And then I had to sort of rely on literature. There are a few other Kenya collections in places, but I didn't have the funds to visit them. I mean, there is a certain amount of risk in using information from something like that, in that the snake might not be correct, you know, lizard or whatever, might not be correctly identified. That does happen. I and mean, it yeah. happens all the time. It happens on iNaturalist as well. Yeah. And a few yeah. months ago, someone put a picture on iNaturalist of a snake from Uganda. And somebody, two or three people, confidently identified it as a, as a mole snake. And as soon as I saw the picture, I thought, it's not a mole snake. I mean, you don't get mole snakes in Uganda anyway. Right. It was a hook-nosed snake, Scaphiophis. So, you, you, you know, you've got to apply a little sort of... Um, discretion when you're looking at these records right so I, i'm a bit wary sometimes of things that are well away from their well away from their habitat but on the other hand if you've got a picture i mean there are some things you cannot identify with certainty with just a picture and attractaspis is a classic example yeah. <laughs> yeah. or the blind snakes but cobras mambas bigger vipers a lot of the tree snakes and things like that you can look at a picture and say yeah that's it so yeah. provided the person hasn't tried to pull a fast one, when I mean, that does happen, 
remember someone telling me somebody posted a picture of a, a taipan or something and said they'd they'd seen it in africa so well that's a, there was an iNaturalist uh posting of a gaboon viper in miami and oh, yeah. what, it, what it was is the person was on vacation in i don't know south africa or wherever and then they posted it when they got home, but they forgot oh, right. to change the the, the yeah. geolocation. <laughs> <laughs> so they're sitting on their couch, so you know, home from their vacation, <laughs> home from holiday, posting it. It clearly is not in Miami. <laughs> not in Miami. No, that's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. I mean, with all these things, I mean, it can happen in museums. I mean, people have sure. taken specimens from one particular place and then put the specimen there and said it came from somewhere else. If they're not around to ask. Yeah. I mean, when I when I was doing the Kenya snake checklist back in nineteen uh, in the 1970s, I came across a little collection in the museum from uh, supposedly from a, a college on the outskirts of Nairobi, the Kenyatta College. But the specimens there were all basically low country animals. There was a, a little Smith's racer and a speckled sand snake or something. But fortunately, the person who'd collected them was uh was still living at the college and i was able to ring them up and they said oh no so i collected the snakes at voy down in eastern kenya i'm the one that lives at the college you know but they'd obviously left the snakes there and said yeah from so and so at kenyatta college and so they were labeled as coming from there wow very interesting yeah and i imagine uh it's also hard on certain areas too i mean there's not a lot of iNaturalist postings from you know darfur or anything <laughs> especially exactly, yeah. yeah it's so so you, you got a kind of grain of salt exactly that's exactly it. I mean, when we first started sort of planning the Northeast Africa book, I wasn't sure whether we were going to be able to do it. But our team was joined by Abu Bakr Mohammed. And of course, he's a Sudanese and he knew the country and he had pictures. And basically, it strengthened the coverage enormously. And I mean, he could, Excellent. you know, I'd talk to him critically and say, what about this? What about that? And he'd say, yep, that's a good record. That's a bad one, et cetera, et cetera. And he knew the what the collection was like in the in the Sudanese National Museum. And here is the tragic thing, because you know Sudan at the minute is being torn to bits by civil yes, war. Sir. Very and much those so. guys have they bombed the bloody museum, you know? Oh jeez. And no one knows if the collection is intact and I suspect it's probably not. And you know, this is one of the things that greatly interests me because I, I was one of the things Richard Leakey once said to me, this is Jonathan's brother, he said to me, Kenyan specimens should be in Kenyan museums. And he didn't like the way he was talking mostly about paleontological stuff, that the classic skulls that they discovered in Tanzania and Kenya had gone to museums in the West. And I'm fully in support of that, you know, but at the same time, if you do deposit stuff in a third world country museum, if it's not stable and it's not properly curated, the whole damn thing can go to pot. Um, when I was in Ethiopia, there's a Zimbabwean herpetologist, he's dead now, a very good guy called uh, Don Broadley. And Don asked me, he was doing some work on blind snakes, and he said, there's some specimens logged as being in the collection of the Arwash National Park Museum. Would I mind going down and having a look at, look at them and do some scale counts? So I went down there and the curator of the museum said, oh, yeah, no problem. We got these specimens out and they'd all dried to dust. You know, the, the preservative had basically, it was alcohol, had evaporated away. Wow. And the snakes had just fallen to bits. And of course, I was distraught about this. And, and the right. curator said to me, he said, you know, I'm awfully sorry. He said, there's nothing we can do about it. He said, we, you know, we've been through a civil war. We've been through a hard times. The priority of the guys in charge of wildlife hasn't been supplying alcohol for specimens in the museum, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they just gone. 
It's a shame. And there was a there was a similar problem in the museum in Addis Ababa where they actually had a well curated collection with a, an enthusiastic curator who topped the stuff up, but the collection was on public exhibit, and they were in on shelves behind glass, but the the doors weren't locked and they discovered specimens were going missing and of course people were getting them and taking them for sort of magic reasons you know to sort of wow. make a, a potion and things like that and a whole lot of crucial specimens had disappeared and oh, i mean shit. we persuade we persuaded the curators look this stuff's got to be locked and then they did they did do it but you know people have just been nicking stuff wow that's wild so Absolutely. this is one of the things, you know, you put stuff in an American museum or, or a British museum and, you know, or a European museum. There is a, a reasonable chance that they'll be properly curated. Sure. Absolutely. Um, Nipper, did you have something you wanted to say? You're muted, sir. My fault. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, before, well, not that we forget, but I'm really keen to know, to tell us about the process of writing your not most famous is the wrong word but for me one of the most in, enjoyable of your works which is the sun sand and snakes book yes all right perfect yeah all right yeah well <laughs> i always wanted to write i mean this is something my mother encouraged me in you know i mean i was forever writing stuff when i was young i used to do good compositions at school and i remember it was in the 70s i i i read a book by a guy called charles sweeney he was a zoologist who'd been based in the Sudan. And I read his book and thought, you know, I've got adventures like this. I shall, I shall write myself. And I mean, I had, you know, big dreams about being the next Wilbur Smith or Frederick Forsyth or something. Anyway, yeah. I, I, I just started writing these, these stories down and uh, typing them out laboriously on a typewriter. And um, after a while, I got enough. And I thought, okay, there's enough for a book here. And uh, I, I sort of researched who published books about Africa. The first publishers I sent it to, you know, they kept it for about six weeks and then sent it back without comment, which was a very sort of <laughs> downheartening down moment. Right. You, know, you get this standard letter saying, we're afraid we have no place for your thing in our list. But then I thought, well, I'll try William Collins because they are a big publisher in Britain. I mean, they're now Random House. Um, they publish a lot of Africa stuff. They published all, I don't know, do you know Joy Adamson, yeah. The Lion Lady? Yeah. Um, anyway, they published they published her books, so I sent it to them. And fortunately, they had it read by someone who was enthusiastic about Africa. And the guy rang me up and said, "Look, we like this. We'll publish it." He said, "It's going to need a bit of editorial work because there's some stuff that needs expanding and there's some stuff that needs cutting and things like that." And that was a great moment, 1977. And I mean, they they basically worked on it. And it was a sort of couple of years in production. Then it came out, and that was a really nice moment. I, um, I would. Definitely, for anybody that hasn't read it, if you like field herping, if, if you like travel, and if uh, particularly if you're into snakes, venomous snakes, stuff, I just get yourself a copy. The beauty of it is it's like snakes and snake hunting. It doesn't age. Yep. The the well, that's very kind of you to say that. I mean, I sometimes read the bits in there and I sort of I start cringing. You know, I think, oh god, did I really write this? But, but what I, what I mean is the excitement of uh, of the travel and the being out there herping and that sort of thing it could yeah. it, it's the same as snake and snake hunting although they were both written quite a long time ago they could almost be written yesterday in terms of or language might change yeah. but the the actual ethos of being out there and herping and and traveling and looking for animals 
I think it's, it's a lovely book. It really is. Uh, that's very kind of you to say that. I mean, so I enjoyed writing it. And I mean, you know, luckily, apart from that first rejection letter, I mean, it all went very smoothly, you know, and I was, I'm, I'm forever grateful to Collins for publishing it. I mean, at the time, they did do a lot of East African stuff. I mean, there's a story. I mean, Billy Collins, who was actually the, you know, the, the managing director. I mean, he had a, a personal interest in the the East African story, and he was he was friendly with Joy Adamson. I mean, there's a rumor that he had an affair with her. Um, but uh, oh. they, they, you know, they took they they took great interest in uh, in uh, East Africa, and a whole lot of books came out at that time. And I sort of rode in on the back of that. Oh, oh well, I'm very glad you did because I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's uh, very much so. Yeah, um, and I think the only other one we haven't talked about. Is the amphibia and reptiles of Ethiopia and Eritrea? Yes. Oh, right. That was I did that with Malcolm Large, and yeah, and that was that's a Chimera book. I mean, interesting story. I mean, originally after we'd done the the East African field guide, I thought I'd like to do Northeast Africa, and I put together a team um, of you know colleagues and herpetologists I knew, and we approached our publisher. The, the, the people who published the East African Field Guide, the um, academic press, and said, were they interested? And they made very enthusiastic noises. And they said, yeah, we, we, we're probably going to go ahead with this. And then academic press suddenly were taken over by a big publishing firm called Reed Elsevier. And basically they said they were moving entirely out of book publishing. They were moving into publishing only scientific journals which are all to be sold by subscription. And they sold their entire list to um, ANC Black, who are now Bloomsbury. And in fact, ANC Black at the time basically said, this is too big a project for the minute. We're not interested any longer. But Malcolm Largen and I had done a lot of preparatory work on Ethiopia and Eritrea, because of course I was living there and he'd been based there. And so we didn't want it to go to waste. So we approached Chimera. You know, and they said, "Yeah, we'll do it." And I, yeah. I was very, very pleased with that. Although at the time, we didn't have the. You'll, if you look at that, you'll see there's a lot of species where we don't have the pictures. Um, you know, stuff had never been photographed. Now, this one basically has got. I mean, it covers Ethiopia, and uh, Eritrea, and uh, the other countries as well. And my co-authors, Thomas Mazuch and. Uh, Abu Bakr had got pictures of most of the stuff that I hadn't got. So our coverage was was good. And I mean, this in some ways has now outdates the, the Ethiopia book. But, you know, Chimera, you know their books. I mean, they, they basically yeah, it, oh, yeah. they bought herpetology into the, into yeah. the mainstream. Yeah. And I, in some ways, I think the, the big disadvantage of Chimera books is that they're not available in bookstores. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and this is this is the thing when you walk into a bookshop you know in nairobi or in dar es salaam or somewhere like that you don't see any chimera books in there even though there may be a book on the snakes of that country i mean an old friend of mine patrick malonza he's the herpetologist the curator of herpetology in the museum in nairobi he's just produced a book on reptiles and amphibians of kenya with beryl bong and i mean he did this the reptiles and beryl did the uh, the frogs but it's a book that costs about 80 quid. No naturalist in Kenya can afford that. I mean, there are guys no. there, some really good naturalists there, and some really good guides. But these are guys that are on sort of, you know, 
I don't know what it is, thousand dollars a month and so on. You know, right. if, if if that, yeah. they, they you know often less than that, much less than that, they can't afford an expensive book like that. And also, this is the other thing about the Chimera books; they're they're big and unwieldy. You know, and one of the things I liked about our the Dangerous Snakes book is that it's reasonably portable. You know, it's light. Yeah. You can stick it in your rucksack. Yeah, I, want to, I don't know why I'm saying this because my, this East, Northeast Africa book is bloody huge. <laughs> anyway, I mean, we, we actually contracted for a much smaller book, but when we started writing it, it became, you know, it became obvious that there was stuff that hadn't been published before, particularly, you know, Thomas, Thomas Mazuch, he's done a lot of work in Northeast Africa. He goes to Somaliland, which is a dangerous place. Yeah. And he got pictures, he got field data, the geckos, this huge radiation of Hemidactus gecko the agamas the desert lacertids and i thought well this stuff hasn't been published or yeah. if it has it's not in the public domain it's in obscure journals so we went back to the publishers and said look it's looking much bigger you know what do you think and they came back and said look to hell with it go for it we said, we'll have to put the price up it's not going to be 30 quid any longer it's 70 quid but you know basically go it. for it yeah well yeah. that's what we that's what we thought Very you know beautiful. Have you done much research on um, like Libya and Morocco, that sort of area? Not research as such. I mean, I spent a bit of time in Morocco and uh, with my son, we spent a few weeks in the field there. Um, the, the part of North Africa that I know well is Egypt, where I lived for a year. But yeah, no, I've, I've never been to Libya. Well, actually, I went there as a kid. When we flew out to Kenya in 1957, the plane stopped overnight in, in Benghazi. But uh, it'd be an interesting place to research, although it's one of these places that it's a bit risky to go to. Yeah, I, I just wondered what you thought of the various Serasti species there, whether you had any experience with them. Well, I found, I found them in Egypt. I mean, there's Serastis, Serastis, and Serastis viper are there. I know, what's his name? Uh, Philip Wagner described in a... A separate species of Serastes from Tunisia. That's what I was going. That's where that's yeah. where I'm leading with this. It's, it, it's known from one or two specimens. I mean, I I hate to say it because I mean, Phil's a very good herpetologist, but I suspect it's just an aberrant specimen. That that is what that was good. That was my question. I was leading yeah. up to yeah. what you actually thought of it. Is it Serastes? Oh, Hemiae or something like that? Isn't it? <laughs> Let me see if I see if I can find it. Um, I think it's yeah. Serastis, 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 Serastis Burmai. It's named after Wolfgang Burma. Yes. Yeah. What a memory. Yeah. It's just this this weird looking thing. I mean, where is it? Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm always wary when you just <laughs> having said that. I've done it myself with Bitis herena, but when you people describe a new species based on a single specimen. I mean, yeah. you know, have you heard of Atheris acuminata? Yes. Okay, now that was described by Don Broadley from a single specimen found in Uganda, dead on a path. I look at that and think, that is Hispida. Yeah. You know, it's just an aberrant Hispida. Don described it as a separate species based on a slight difference in the mid-body scale count. I thought, you know, one specimen in Hispida country that's Hispida for sure. It's not. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it, it stands there. And I mean, Don was a nice guy. You don't want to go around debunking him. But on the other hand, you know, I think I don't think that's a genuine species. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. However, I might, might be wrong. You never know. Mm. So have you hurt Tanzania at all? In the north. 
yeah. in the north. I've never been right down into the into the Eastern Arc Mountains, but yeah, Serengeti, round Arusha, Mount Kilimanjaro, Dar es Salaam, Bagamoyo. I've been there. And have you seen the Lycodactylus there? Not the blue one. Yeah, or is no, that? I've never, I, I've never seen a wild one of them. Ah. I've seen some captive ones. Yeah, Lycodactylus Williams eye. Yeah, be a fabulous little lizard. I've electric, got a, electric I've got, blue. Yeah, I've got a nice group of those. I think they're. Have amazing. you? I do. Yeah, I oh, think they wow. are absolutely amazing. I would love to get some real data on their habitat because yeah. there's very there's a, there's a couple of papers on them which yeah. have brief descriptions, but. Yeah, I think they're incredible. You know, I, I might have something somewhere. I'll see if I can dig it out. You know, they're ser they're seriously threatened. Yeah, critically well, endangered in the world. And the thing is, the guys that harvest them, I mean, in some ways, I have sympathy with those guys because in a country like Tanzania, it's hard to make a living. So if you can make a living catching and selling reptiles, you know, good luck to you. All it needs is for the government to have oversight. But what they do, they live on those little pandanus trees, and the guys who catch them, they just go, they just slash through the trunk of the tree, hold it upside down and shake it into a into a big bucket. Wow. And the Lycodactylus fall out. So then you get Lycodactylus and they're not damaged by the catching that way. But the tree's gone and the habitat's buggered. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a hideous way to harvest them. But, you know, I'm all in favor of, you know, get a good colony of them, get them breeding. And then the demand on the wild drops if they're being captive bred. Uh, to, uh, to, to be fair now, um the regulations, the CITES enforcement is so strong on them that there's no wild caught ones coming in. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 in some ways, I'm glad about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't like the idea of them being captured. No, I mean, you know, anything blue is incredible. I mean, if, yeah, well, it is for, for, for a reptile that's any reptile that's blue is incredible. Mm. If we look at the um, the Insularis pit viper, it's oh, yeah, an incredible mm. specimen. Yeah, um, have you seen? I'm going to just quickly Google the Latin name so I don't get it wrong. Um, Montatheris Hindi. Montatheris Hindi, yeah. Yeah. Quite a yeah. few. You call them. On, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's one species I have found. They live on the on the moorlands of the Aberdare Mountains and Mount Kenya. What's the habitat like there? It's a uh, basically high altitude grassland okay. if you go up those mountains you go through a forest belt you've got medium altitude forest then you've got big trees and you've got bamboo and then you emerge on the top and it's basically open grassland and they live up there and you know that that land freezes at night i was going to say so it must be huge temperature drops it drops below zero they're a viper that's entirely active by day and in the morning when the sun gets up they basically come out and bask and in that area there's this huge tussock grass and they live up in the grass they you know they hide in the grass tufts they get right down inside so they you know they keep warm and they come out on sunny days and they'll bask for an hour hour and a half and then they go out looking for something to eat what, you, what they feed is it primarily amphibians or? no yeah amphibians little mammals particularly shrews and uh, lizards and even oh, okay. chameleons i think there's a wow. little chameleon that lives up there and they eat that oh so that is one of my number if i did herp africa that would be one of the number one species that i'd want to see uh, if you spend time, you could probably more or less guarantee finding one. Although officially, officially, of course, you're not allowed to collect them because their entire habitat is within two national parks. 
but having said that i mean i know the guys up there the rangers are used to people asking about them and they're tolerant of you going looking for them and photographing them so long as you don't try to take them away oh, I, don't, I don't want to keep one i just oh. I, I, it's not something i think yeah. um that would do well being kept in captivity given the specific temperature requirements of it um it'd yeah. be hard in a uh even in a Europe, certainly not in America, but even in a European collection to get night drops like that. Yeah, that's right. You need, you need to be cold cold at night and, and yeah. warm in the day. Well, we used to keep them in the Nairobi Snake Park, but they never really did much good in a cage. You know, they'd feed for a bit and then they just stop feeding and they just gradually fade away. But there was a herpetologist at the museum called Alex Mackay and he managed to keep some and I'd asked him about it and he said, well, I live up at Limuru, which is quite high altitude. I mean, it's not as high as the Aberdares. The Aberdares, where these things live, is 3,000 meters. Limuru was sort of 2,300 meters. But he kept them outside, basically, in, a, in an open, you know, actually, it was a big barrel. And these snakes lived outside. And he found they did all right there. And he used to yeah. put shrews and lizards in and so on. And they ate. The thing exactly. he had to be careful of was that he said, you know, there are predatory birds there, things like auger buzzards and so on. And he said one buzzard found he got these snakes and started taking them, so he had to, uh, put, a, had to put a net over the top. Uh, just some, just the whole thing of that it's such a unique habitat, that it's such a small range. A, uh, a tiny range, that's right, yes. Yeah. And no one knows as yet their affinities, you know. I mean, if you look at it and think, okay, what is it related to? But having said that, um, some guys in the Czech Republic, Jiri Smid and a couple of other guys, have managed to get the museum in Nairobi to send some tissue samples. All oh, right, I thought you were going to say they'd managed to get hold of some. Something. No, no. I, well, having said that, somebody told me they were once available at Ham. Oh. Somebody, somebody had obviously smuggled some out. Because officially you can't get them out because they no. live entirely within the national park. So anyone that's got one, it's been obtained illegally. But some tissues were sent out and they're in the process of being analysed now. You see, when I look at them, I think, OK, it looks, it looks a bit like a European viper. It looks very much like a ladder, really. Yeah, they were called Vipera uh, hindi. Oh, and then, okay. they were then they were changed to Atheris and now Mont Atheris. But my suspicion is that the DNA will indicate that they're closely related to Atheris. But we're waiting to see. I'm talking of Atheris. If you've seen this, I will be very cross. Have you seen Atheris Barberi? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, sure. Barberi. Barberi. Barbara, I've never seen one. You've never seen one. For many years, no one had ever seen a live one. They were found by Loveridge in Tanzania in the 1930s, and there were specimens in the museum, but no one had ever seen one. But then a few began being found in the Udzungwa, Udzungwa Mountains. And there are now, I mean, somebody put a picture of one the other day on our on our Facebook forum. Wow. They're, they're very weird because they don't like, look like your typical atheris. Hmm. I mean, when I when I first got a picture of one, this was there was a guy called Luke Marler who went there and found some, sent me a picture of it. I sent a copy of it to Bill Branch. I mean, Bill was my co-author on the Dangerous Snakes book. I mean, poor man's dead now, sadly. But uh, Bill wrote back to me and said, "That's an incredible snake. It looks like a slug eater on steroids." Yeah, 
That's, I've only I've seen a museum specimen, but I've never I've not seen a live one. You'll find if you if you Google them, you'll find you'll find some pictures online. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're they're interesting looking animals. I say they they don't look like your typical atheris, and I think the only thing that's been found in their stomachs was was worms or something like that. I'd have to check that. No, I believe you're right. I think they're just an mm. invertebrate feeder. I think yeah. incredible, another great thing. So you've obviously helped a great deal in Africa. Is there a species that you haven't seen that you really want to see in the in situ? Yeah, it's a gaboon viper. All right, that was easy. Yeah, <laughs> right. I thought it was going to be something really rare. Vitis gabonica <laughs> and nasocornis as well. You know, I mean, I've never, right. I've, I've never found either of them. Yeah, I mean, when I was on the Kwahu Ridge, you know, I was in Ghana, I was looking for these guys, and I, I can, I just didn't find any at all. And then, of course, on the day I'm leaving, I'm going down to to get a bus down the hill. There's a dead rhino horn viper on the road. Oh my days! It never fails. This, this is the way it always happens. I mean, one of the, there was yeah. a guy I was, I did a lot of um, road hunting with in in Kumasi in Ghana, trying to find a gaboon, and we never found one. And of course. Two days after I left, he went out one night. He had to go out, and there was one on the road. <laughs> Always the way. Story. Yeah, on, gonna... on the other, on the other hand, you'll occasionally get slices of luck. I mean, I was once in Namibia, and um, we stopped at this spring up in the north. And I was chatting to one of the guys here, and I said, "Are there any snakes around here?" And he said, "Yeah, there's one that lives up in a rock crack up above the spring." And I said, "Is it there now?" And he said, "Oh, it's always there." And we went up and looked in this crack, and there was a, a python anchiate. You know, Angolan python, wow, just yeah. just right there. You know, incredible. I, mean, I know people have spent time in Namibia trying to find them and never found one. So yeah, yeah. We, we got it, got it out and took some pictures and then put I, it back. I, I know guys that went into Angola, not legally looking for it, just to photograph it, and still didn't find it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you just never know your luck. Yeah. I mean, it's like where I lived in northern Ghana. Royal pythons occurred there, but they were very, very rare. And I mean, the time I was there, I was two years. I collected about 500 snakes. Only two of them were royal pythons, you know. Wow. But then down in the south at Accra, the, I was down at the university there, just outside Accra. And I mean, I was staying with Barry Hughes, snake, British snake man, but based there. And I put the word out and royal pythons started coming in straight away. And I mean, around Accra, they're still quite common. Up in the north, I mean, they're, they're just they're, they're just uncommon. That's ball pythons for our American friends. Yeah, ball pythons. Yeah, yeah. We got it. We got it. We got it. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned just gaboons and rhinos, that there are several ecotour herp groups that are from around here, and they've, they're going to Uganda, and they're finding both on in one trip, multiple specimens. So maybe that's mm. the next stomping ground. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to be libelous. I better not tell you the story about how those things are found. Oh, I, I think we're all aware that some less than scrupulous herb trips will drop them on, well, those, on the trail. The thing is, there are three ways of doing that sort of stuff. You can go and try and find them by yourself, okay, which is difficult, okay. You can go with a guy who knows the area. And I mean, there are guys, I mean, I know in Kenya, there are guys who know the Arabuka Sokoke forest and they know where puff adders are and they know where green mambas are. And I mean, these snakes are not captive, nor are they restrained. 
but they know where they can find one. You know, and somebody says, I'm really keen to see a puff adder. They'll say, talk to such and such a guide. He knows where one lives. And they'll go there and they'll hunt around and they'll find it because it hasn't moved very far. And then the third level is where you've got guys who've got a sort of tame patch of forest. And the morning before you go out, the guys are out there early in the morning and they slip a gaboon viper underneath a, underneath a particular rock and they put a James's member in a particular tree and they stick a rhino horn into a, into a hole in the log. And then they're, they're around, out of sight, making sure the snakes don't disappear. And you come along on your tour and the guide finds it for you or even sort of points you in the right direction and, and you find it. And I mean, who's to say that's wrong? I mean, it's like, you know, in Kenya, if you want to see a leopard, you drive in the park, you might find one by yourself. You get a good guide, he knows where they live. But on the other hand, you can go to a lodge where they put a bait up every night and the leopard's going to come, you know, and it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. So the, the herb tours, yeah, Uganda's become quite quite famous for that. And I mean, those guys are under pressure to deliver the goods. The people that go there want to see an atheris, they want to see a rhino horn, yeah. they want to see a, uh, you know, a gaboon viper, they want to see a Jameson's man with a forest cobra. If you've got a little stock back at home, you know, it's easy enough to pop them into the right place just before the clients arrive. I'm sure I've seen the same Hispida um, in about a thousand instagram posts from certain areas yeah 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 i mean there was one one guy went there he's mad you know really pleased because he's photographed a jameson's mamba but when he showed me the picture i could see that firstly the snake had a major mouth infection um and secondly there were there were, you know there were there were droppings scattered on its back and the only way one snake gets to poo on another is if they're together in a cage, exactly. basically. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't say anything. I didn't want to spoil his enjoyment. No. Is it so? Have you got any trips planned? Is there anywhere that you want to go off? Um, well, the trouble is, the places I want to go are the sort of really no-go areas. And now I'm 70, my wife won't let me. I mean, I'd I'd really like to go to uh, Somalia. You can, you can always get a new wife. Don't you? <laughs> Oh, I'm happy with happy with the old model, oh. but um, yeah, um, Somalia I'd like to go to. I want to go to spend more time in the forest in Central Africa, but I'm hoping to sort of organise something along those lines in the in the not too distant future. But in the end, I mean, as I say I will get to my age, I still just tend to want to go back to Kenya. You know, there are places there I've never been. I know the country and things like that. So yeah. That's great. And just, just finally, because we're, we're conscious that we have taken nearly two hours of your time. Um, have you got any advice for an aspiring new herper, new field herper? Get out there and find the stuff. Yeah. I mean, plan, plan your trips, you know. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you're in the right, if you're in the right area, get out there in the field, your local patch, you know. If you're going somewhere far afield, the crucial thing is to is to pick the right time. I mean, if you go to, on a herping trip to Kenya, for example, and I mean, there are guys who can take you and take you around. But if you go in the dry season, you're not going to see very much. You want to go in the wet season and also get your guide to take you to a place where you can get out and walk i mean the thing that frustrates many people in kenya is you know they want to do herping and they go into a national park and they find it you're not allowed to get out of your vehicle except at designated spots and i mean you know as a field herper, you want to wander across the country start turning over you know ground cover and looking for stuff but yeah i mean you know just do it go there find the stuff spend time and you know don't go with a you know try to leave yourself some days free rather than being on a, a tight schedule go there enjoy the country lovely well said sir well said well said
Phil, anything else from you? No, I mean, we, we covered everything that I, you know, wanted to touch base on. And uh, I think this has been great. This has been fantastic. Exactly. I, I can't thank you. Well, we can't thank you enough for well, coming on and talking to us. It's been amazing. Thank, thank you for inviting me. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk with other herpers, you know, especially enthusiastic guys like you, you know. So thank you for inviting me. It's been it's been great. It's like, you know, this is the thing about being a herper. You just get together and it's just like being with old friends. It is. You just you chat, just chat you know. <laughs> and I mean, you can, go on, you can go for days and days talking about it. There's just so much to talk about. So it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, pleasure's, pleasure's all ours. Pleasure's definitely oh, thank, thank you, sir. I mean, I've, I've greatly enjoyed it. You know, I mean, the time seems to have gone nowhere. I remember thinking just now, we've, we've been going half an hour. And we're going, <laughs> it's coming up for, for, for two hours. hours. Um, yeah. Folks, do check out all Stephen's books on uh, Amazon. The field guides, if you're, if you're planning a, a trip to any of those countries, essential. If, like me, you just want to sit at home and look at nice pictures of all the venomous snakes, I, I cannot recommend them enough. Uh, I would say to try and get the older ones as well, because I think, although it's just a lovely piece of herp history, um, and, and do read um, the memoirs, because, as I, as I said before, if you like field herping, you, it will really resonate with you. Yeah, it, it really is timeless. It, it, it pertains to everything that we do nowadays. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's very great. kind. I particularly like being compared to Carl Corfeld, you know, because I mean, I really enjoyed those books. You know? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. It, it, it's, it's in the same mold, though. It, it yeah. Really, yeah. That's, that's yeah. very, very kind of you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, thanks again, folks, for, for listening to us. Really appreciate it. Um, thanks to all the people that reached out after the last episode that we did on the European Vipers. I had uh, a fair number of people um, just you know, give me some really lovely feedback on that. So that's really, really uh, appreciated. Um, we'll, if, if anybody has any particular areas or species that they want Phil and I to do an episode on, just let us know. Um, but yeah, thanks for all the feedback. Thanks for the people that are following me on Insta now. We're getting there. We are. We are getting there. We'll get over a thousand followers. It's not far off now. So nice. that's great. And, and if anyone's listening to this and you're not following the Venom Exchange Radio Instagram or the Venom Exchange Radio on YouTube, you got to do it. Just go click the button for click crying the button, out loud. Like and subscribe. Leave us a five star review. And yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you. Bye. Mm -hmm.